I invite you to turn to Scripture with me. Psalm 130 is our reading for this afternoon. Psalm 130. Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than a watchman for the morning, more than a watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. We now turn to Lord's Day 30 of the Catechism. This will help us consider the Lord's Supper from the perspective of the psalm that we just read. So we read Lord's Day 30 together, page 545. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Papal Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us, first, that we have complete forgiveness of all our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. And second, that through the Holy Spirit we are grafted into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and this is where he wants to be worshipped. But the Mass teaches first that the living and the dead do not have forgiveness of sins through the suffering of Christ unless he is still offered for them daily by the priests. And second, that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine and there is to be worshipped. Therefore, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. Who are to come to the table of the Lord? Those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins and yet trust that these are forgiven them and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. But hypocrites and those who do not repent eat and drink judgment upon themselves. Are those also to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who by their confession in life show that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No, for then the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, according to the command of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven until they amend their lives. 
so far? Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever experienced this? You come to church on a Lord's Supper Sunday, and there are one or two visitors in the pews. They might be Christians, but maybe this is their first time ever in a free Reformed church. And they had to pick that morning to come. And so they get told, you cannot join us. At the Lord's Supper. Now, some of them don't take that very well. They might say things like, well, who are you to question God's forgiveness of me? And at first glance, that might seem to be a fair comment, right? Forgiveness is such a personal thing. And some people might be bold, it is true, and they almost push their way to the front, so to speak. But others might struggle with knowing whether or not they have it and lag behind. And, and maybe sometimes you feel that way yourself. How do you experience assurance? Where does it come from? Lord's Day 30 suggests that it comes from two sources. The first is what the sacrament testifies to us when, it, when we celebrate it. And the second is what we experience when we celebrate. So that's how we'll also approach this uh, topic this afternoon, that the Lord's Supper assures us of forgiveness and renewal because of what it testifies to us when we celebrate and because of what we experience when we celebrate. Now, the first question I answer in Lord's Day 30 contrasts the Reformed view of the Lord's Supper with the Roman Catholic view. And this is not the first time that we've um, looked at the Lord's Supper. And it might seem like overkill to devote one more Lord's Day to this theme. But the Reformers wanted to make sure that we fully understood what is at stake here. The whole point of celebrating the Lord's Supper is to assure us of God's promises. And we need assurance. Think about the words of Belgian Confession Article 33 here. Quote, we believe that our gracious God, mindful of our insensitivity and weakness, has ordained sacraments to seal his promises to us and to be pledges of his goodwill and grace towards us. He did this to nourish and sustain our faith. He has added these to the word of the gospel to represent better to our external senses both what he declares to us in his word and what he does inwardly in our hearts. Thus he confirms to us the salvation which he imparts to us. So far, the Belgian Confession. So, it's saying to us, look, the Lord knows that we generally fall into one of two categories. Either we're insensitive or we're overly sensitive, weak. And that's why the Lord has given us these sacraments. He's given us specifically the Lord's Supper to be a pledge of His goodwill and grace towards us and to sustain and nourish our faith, to, to show to us 
what we already hear in the gospel, to make it so clear to us that we cannot possibly miss what he wants to say. But that does mean that the sacraments have no inherent power of their own. They are merely a further, maybe merely is not the right word, but they are a further confirmation of the gospel. Because the Lord wants to get this message across to us as completely as possible. And so you see that reflected in the opening uh, words of uh, answer 80, in that word testifies. The Lord's Supper testifies to us. And that word testifies is not a word that we use very often. It's not um, the sort of word that you use in day-to-day speech. But it is, it is the sort of word that you could expect in a courtroom. It has a legal flavor to it. To testify means to serve as evidence or proof. And so the Lord's Supper serves as evidence to us, proof to us that we have complete forgiveness of all our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And it is solemn. We need that kind of a solemn testimony because of the very serious evidence against us. Consider Psalm 130, which we read this afternoon. It gives us a hint of what we're up against. The psalmist is in the depths. He doesn't specify what those depths are. But it's obvious that his main problem is a sense of alienation from God. And he, you see that reflected in these words. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Those are the words of a man who senses his separation from God keenly. And that separation is a consequence of sin. The canons of Dort speak about this as well in chapter 5, article 5, when it says, by such gross sins, however, they greatly offend God, incur the guilt of death, grieve the Holy Spirit, suspend the exercise of faith, severely wound their consciences, and sometimes for a while lose the sense of God's favor. Sin makes us lose so much. There is no part of life that is unaffected, and it, it corrupts the way that we look at everything. And, you, and, and so you get a bit of that, that sense of loss from these opening verses of this psalm. There is a sense of deep and profound sadness here. And he can't do a thing about it. There's nothing he can do about it. He's totally unable to change a situation himself. This is way past the point of self-help, way past the point of pop psychology. If he was able to help himself, he would have done that. Psalmist is no different from the rest of us. So there's not just a sense of alienation in this psalm, but a sense of profound need. We should not think that what is being described here is unusual. What the psalm describes about sin is true of all of us. The immense consequences of sin are separation from God. By nature, we have no right to reach out to God in prayer. The only reason that the psalmist dares to do this is because of God's prior self-revelation. And you see that in the psalm a number of times, it has his name, uh, the word Lord, in small caps. And, and as I'm sure you're all aware, um, this is the, the English representation of, of um, God's Hebrew name, Yahweh, his covenant name, 
the covenant name by which he revealed himself to his people in the past. That means I am. It means that he's a God who is present for his people, a God who is willing to hear his people and to forgive them when they don't deserve it. So the psalmist banks on that. He waits in prayer. He knows that God has revealed himself to his people as a God who forgives. He knows that this is the only thing in life that you can really count on. And so he waits. He says that two times in verse 5 to really get this idea across. Uh, Wait for the Lord, my soul waits. This waiting, holy waiting on God, holy waiting for God, and in his word I hope. And then look at how how the language works here. It, It gets repeated in verse 6, and then and then passed on, that word hope gets passed on to verse 7 as an encouragement to all of Israel. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning, more than a watchman for the morning. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Do you, do you see this buildup of, of these words, wait and hope, hope and wait in this psalm? He's waiting for a sign, a word. He knows the Lord will forgive. He never doubts that. He never doubts it. This word hope does not refer to hope in the sense of uncertainty, but hope in the sense of expectation. But he still has to wait. Now the Lord's Supper testifies to the certainty of that forgiveness. It points us to Jesus Christ, because Jesus, Jesus really did go to the depths. He really did go to the depths. He really did cry out to God from the depths of suffering and loneliness. His body really was broken, and his blood was really poured out on the cross. He really is the once-for-all redemption of sin. And that's where the elements of the Lord's Supper come into the picture. Because these elements cross over the vast distance between God and man in the depths, so to speak. They testify to the complete redemption that the psalmist longed for. They represent the answer to his prayer to us all who are in the depths and on the days when you feel that more strongly than other days in your weakness, the elements speak. And it's mysterious. There is an aspect of mystery here. The Lord's Supper is mysterious because forgiveness is mysterious. We don't understand it, do you? Do you understand how God can forgive? It's a mystery to us, as it was to the psalmist. The psalm states it. The psalm, psalmist grounds all of his hope on it, but in the end, the psalm never explains it because it is a mystery. And we see some of that mystery reflected in verse 4, this cryptic, enigmatic verse. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Does that make sense to you? With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. What kind of fear is he talking about? Not terror, although the potential for terror certainly is there when you're dealing with God. But this this fear is a related fear, the other side of the coin a sense of profound reverence for God. Profound reverence. We see these two senses of fear, terror and reverence, being used at the same time in Exodus 20, verse 20. Here Moses says to the people, 
Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. So do not fear. God has come to test you so that you may fear. There's two different kinds of fear that he's talking about here, you see. Two different sides of the same coin. Reverence on the one side, abject terror on the other. And so the psalm here refers to reverence. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared, but, but the terror of knowing that God can judge is not completely out of the picture. Godly fear is reverence, knowing the Lord as judge and as the one who, who is gracious. Reverence for his grace. That's what verse 4 is trying to get us to. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now we may have doubts sometimes when we approach the Lord's Supper table. And if you've never, never doubted, or if you've never felt a sense of inadequacy, then maybe you've never thought about it deeply enough. But probably if you spoke to people, many could testify to a sense sometimes, maybe not every time, but sometimes of unworthiness. And we might think, is it really for me? And then the Lord's Supper testifies to us, yes, it is. It is for you. And then we move from the one kind of fear to the other. We move from terror of God to reverence for God. Terror makes you shrink back. Reverence makes you approach in awe. Not because of what the Lord's Supper is, but because of what it represents. It represents forgiveness. And here's where the Roman Catholics get it so wrong. Because to them, a lot of the awe comes from what the Lord's Supper is. They really believe it is. The, the bread really is the body of Christ. The wine really is his blood. The Catechism says that the Mass teaches first that the living and the dead do not have forgiveness of sins through the suffering of Christ unless he is still offered for them daily by the priests. And now you may wonder whether or not the Reformers got that right. Your, your primary source of information should not necessarily always come from the people that are opposed to that position, generally speaking. And so, you know, maybe you've spent time before with maybe, you know, Roman Catholics, maybe you've read some of their writings, and maybe you've sometimes had doubts in the back of your mind. You think, did they really get this right? Haven't things changed now? In this day and age of ecumenicity, is it really still appropriate to, to call the Mass a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ when some of us know Roman Catholics who are so serious? But you know what? Maybe a bit of humility on our part would be appropriate. Sometimes ecumenicity is just another word for compromise. The reformers were in the thick of things. They they saw this stuff much more they saw these things much more clearly than we do. The fact is that the Roman Catholics do believe that Christ needs to be offered every day. Consider this quotation from a Roman Catholic book called Sources of Catholic Dogma regarding the Mass. It says, quote, Appeased by this oblation, offering, the Lord, granting the grace and gift of penitence, pardons crimes and even great sins. For it is one and the same victim, the same one now offering by the ministry of the priests as he who then offered himself on the cross, the manner of offering alone being different, end quote. So first of all, the Lord's Supper here is called uh, an oblation, an offering, 
And it part, the offering itself pardons crimes and great sins. And it says that it's um, Christ himself offering himself through the ministry of the priests, just like he did in the past on the cross. It's only the manner of offering which is different. That's what it said. So the phrase denial of the one sacrifice and suffering in the catechism may seem strong in our ears, but the writers of the catechism are just saying it like it is. See, the point is that this once-for-all nature of Christ's sacrifice is missing in the Mass. The Lord's Supper is meant to reassure us. It is meant to point us to what Christ has done. It is meant to make it clear in the clearest possible terms that there is nothing left to add. Consider these words from Hebrews 1 verse 3. After making purification for sins, he, that is Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why did he sit down? Because there's nothing left for him to offer anymore. And from that perspective, the Mass is a tremendous step backwards. See, they also would believe that um, in the sacrifice of Christ, but it is a denial of the one sacrifice. It's not a denial of the one sacrifice. They're not denying that Christ offered himself, but it's a denial of the one sacrifice. They don't dispute that Christ died for our sins, but the essence of his offering needs to be repeated over and over in order to appease God. The Roman Catholics have their own catechism, and as I often like to remind my students, their catechism is a lot bigger than ours, so don't complain if you have to memorize ours. It's not that bad. And regarding the Lord's Supper, it says, quote, Holy Communion separates us from sin. You listen. Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper. Holy Communion separates us from sin. The body of Christ we receive in Holy Communion is given up for us. And the blood we drink shed for the many for the forgiveness of sins. For this reason, the Eucharist cannot unite us to Christ without at the same time cleansing us from past sins and preserving us from future sins, end quote. So it's the elements of the Lord's Supper that cleanse you from sin and preserve you from future sin. Now, obviously, um, they, they don't believe that that happens mechanic, mechanically, and they say that elsewhere as well. You need, to, you need to confess your sins to the priest first before you go to the Lord's Supper and so on. But at, at the end, it does say here that the Eucharist, the bread of the Lord's Supper, cleanses us from past sins and preserves us from future sins. That's their own catechism. And see, the, we, we confess that the Lord's Supper assures us of the promise of forgiveness and renewal that we already have in Jesus Christ. We already have the forgiveness. The Lord's Supper assures us of that. It confirms us in that. It makes it as clear as day to us. And it does so because of what it testifies to us when we celebrate. It also does so because of what we experience when we celebrate. That's our second point. Now, you might be puzzled by that because you've often heard that our feelings are not our primary reference point when it comes to our relationship with the Lord. And yet the second point says, um, it refers to what we experience when we celebrate. And it is true, we don't, we don't look to our feelings, but to the solidity of what the Lord's Supper testifies to us when we celebrate. That's where our confidence lies, in that testimony. But... Our feelings are not irrelevant. 
That's what question and answer 81 asks the question, who are to come to the table of the Lord? And it says, those who are truly displeased with themselves. Now notice that there's no sense of entitlement here. These people, um, presumably, that those are not indignant at the fencing of the table. They're not pushing their way forward with a sense of entitlement. These are people who are filled with the horror of sin, people who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins. And at the same time, who believe the testimony of the sacrament. They trust that their sins are forgiven them, and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. That's really the only requirement. Do you hate your sin? Do you believe that Jesus died for you? And that your remaining weakness is covered by that suffering and death? It's not just past sin that's forgiven, but the remaining weakness as well. You know, we we often... um, are reminded to practice self-examination before the celebration of the Lord's Supper. But really, that week before the Lord's Supper should not be the only time that you do this. Self-examination is something that we practice our whole life. You're never really finished with it. There's always more to know about yourself and your weaknesses. It's, It's part of growing in faith. And even if you have a clear view of yourself as you were in the past, which no one does, that doesn't guarantee a realistic assessment of yourself, of yourself in the present, right? You might say, boy, when I was young, I was a real rat bag. But now that I've grown up and matured, I see everything so much more clearly. Well, I'll wait till 20 years later, and you might look back on that comment and say, how blind was I to, to think that I understood? So this self-examination is a, a, a constant process of growth. There are always sins and weaknesses that remain in us. And yet, these are all covered by the suffering and death of Christ, as the catechism puts it. Remember verse 7 of the psalm, With you, with the Lord, there is steadfast love. With him is plentiful redemption. That is such a beautiful phrase, plentiful redemption. You cannot get any more redemption than that. No matter what the sin is, you cannot have a more plentiful redemption than what you have in Christ. It covers everything, literally everything. Plentiful redemption, abundant provision, grounded in the steadfast love of the Lord. But then those who go to the Lord's Supper also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. So it's not just enough to recognize your sin. It's not enough to recognize that God will forgive you. There needs to be a real desire to amend your life. And if you want to know what that looks like, then go to the form for the celebration of Lord's Supper and look on the section on invitation and admonition. In a number of weeks, we'll be reading it together again. Basically, if there are sins in your life that you do regret and you feel bad about them, but you're not willing to let them go, then you're not desiring to amend your life. That's what that looks like. And then you ought not to come. Since you've been promised a new life, You need to live a new life as well. And we spent a fair bit of time on that this morning, didn't we? But here's the question. Who who gets to verify that you live a new life? Well, the elders do. The elders cannot judge your heart. They cannot judge how displeased you are with yourself because of your sins. 
They cannot judge how much you trust that your sins have been forgiven, but they can certainly judge your behavior. So the table is guarded by the elders on behalf of the church. We do not have what is called an open table, where anyone who wants to join us at the Lord's Supper table can do so on the strength of their feelings. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament celebrated in the local church. That's obvious from the last half of question and answer 82. It refers to the whole congregation. And it says the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such unrepentant persons. Now, obviously, this Christian church can only refer to a local Christian congregation. Otherwise, how could they exclude anyone? So what that indicates is that the Lord's Supper is a sacrament for the local church, which means that local office bearers have the authority to admit those who participate. Not like the priest. The ministers and elders are not like the priest who who decides, in a sense, whether or not you get to commune with Christ. But that does not mean that, therefore, you get to come on your own terms. And that's why we cannot admit just any visitor who comes And can we then just say, if you're visiting here today or listening in on the live video feed and you've visited here in the past and it it was a Lord's Supper Sunday and you were excluded from celebrating the Lord's Supper and you were bewildered and confused and maybe offended because of that, please rest assured that this is not because we question your faith. We are not questioning the sincerity of your faith. That's not the point. In fact, we cannot question the sincerity of your faith because we know nothing about it. We have no way of knowing until you become a member of this local church and submit yourself to the authority of the office bearers and spend time with us, and then we know. We can't question your faith. Being truly displeased with your sins is an internal thing. Trusting that your sins are forgiven is an internal thing, but... If it's sincere, it will also lead to the humility of submitting yourself to the Lord, who, which then also expresses itself in an outward submission to the elders who decide if you can go to the table. These elders are Christ's ambassadors. They want you to come. Why do you think they phone you if you're a member and you're absent? It's God calling you through the office bearers. They are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account So don't see the care of these elders separately from the internal assurance that God gives to us. It's not either or. It is both and. In the end, the Lord's Supper is there to confirm us in what we already know. The same message that you see depicted in the sacrament on Lord's Supper Sunday is the exact same message that you get every other Sunday. A promise that all who believe have complete forgiveness of all their sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he accomplished on the cross once and for all. The promise that through the Holy Spirit we are grafted into Christ, the promise that all of our remaining sins and weaknesses are covered through the suffering and death of Christ. The promise that by his Holy Spirit he will more and more strengthen our faith and amend our life. So, dear brothers and sisters, Let's not treat Lord's Supper Sunday any differently from any other Sunday. The Lord wants you to grow in assurance. He has provided two opportunities to come every Sunday, namely the morning service and the afternoon service. Don't waste them. 
Don't say that the afternoon service is just a man-made invention while treating the Lord's Supper Sunday as if it's in this entirely different extra-holy category. It is not. Remember the words of the Canons of Dort, chapter 5, article 14. Just as it has pleased God to begin this work of grace in us by the preaching of the gospel, so he maintains, continues, and perfects it by the hearing and reading of his word, by meditation on it, by its exhortations, threats, and promises, and by the use of the sacraments. Preaching first, then the sacraments. A visual reminder of the gospel message. May that message always make us turn to the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he has redeemed his people from all their sins. Amen.